I'm turning this evening to Matthew chapter number 6. Matthew chapter number 6 tonight. Matthew 6. And we'll be dealing with the subject of loving one's enemies or loving our enemies. Matthew chapter number 6 verses 1 through 4. Matthew 6 verses 1 through 4. Actually, I'm one week ahead, aren't I? Matthew 5. See, I was working on both sermons today. Maybe I'll just give you both of them tonight. How about that? Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. You'll have to come back next week for Matthew 6. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. I think I'm on the right page now. So let's read this passage. We'll read it through and then we'll begin an exposition. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. This, no doubt, is one of the difficult portions of the Sermon on the Mount when we are called to love our enemies. Uh, it is against just normal, understood human nature to love someone that despises you. Yet that's the very heart of what the Lord has here as he teaches this particular section on loving our enemies. Again, the Lord is having to correct uh, the false interpretation, and in this case, very clear addition of something that was never there. Remember, those who have a part in the kingdom of heaven uh, would never be satisfied with the righteousness, the outward righteousness that the Pharisees regarded as sufficient. The Pharisees believed that outward righteousness was sufficient, that that's all that was really required, and it consisted in nothing more than uh, legalism and a form of outward morality, and it also paid no attention to the mind, and it paid no attention to the heart. It, it really was marked by its externals only. Uh, there are many things that externally look right. Uh, for example, the Lord uses the word love here, uh, loving thy neighbor, loving your enemies. You realize that true love is a love that actually sacrifices. Uh, true love that was just external uh, would not really be a real love. No one wants to just be loved externally, outwardly, as a mere show. True love is sacrificial. But that's why we know what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross was a true sacrificial love. 
It was not that emotional love, and Jesus was not doing it uh, just to have people look upon him and feel sorry for him. He was doing it out of a love for his people. But true love, it bears with others. It bears patiently. Uh, it, it, it submits to that which is required. And it's in these commandments of Christ that we have really, if you've noticed this, and, and maybe you haven't noticed it as much as maybe I've seen it, or maybe it's something that the Lord's just been working on me about, is there seems to be a progression in these ideas of these teachings. They seem to get progressively more difficult. Um, we might say, well, isn't it more difficult about the teachings on temptation or the teachings on divorce or murder and anger or on oaths, forgiveness? Uh, isn't this easier? And I would say loving your enemies is an extremely difficult progression in a place to arrive at. Again, it's not hard to love people who love you back, but it certainly is quite difficult to even try to encapsulate what Jesus is saying here by loving your enemy. So there is in these commandments this progression. Uh, we do know that even in the Old Testament, we're told that we are to love our enemy. Let me give you just a couple of examples as we give you this introduction. Uh, Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, gives us an example of uh, demonstrating uh, what real love would look like. And this is found in a... Uh, a situation being willing to help someone else. And notice who the other person being helped here in Exodus 23. And this is in the section of the laws regarding ethics. Exodus 23, verse 4. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee, lying under his burden, and wouldest forbear to help him, Thou shalt surely help with him. So the idea here that this is your enemy, your enemy's ox. If you see him going astray, don't uh, admire or find enjoyment in the fact that your enemy has lost the ox, but rather go and help him bring that ox back into the fold. Human nature would suggest we would stand back and laugh and say that's what our enemy deserves, I hope that ox runs far, far away and never returns. But the law said, if you see your enemy, then you help restore that ox back to him. Proverbs 25, verse 21. The book of Proverbs, chapter 25, verse 21. If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty... Give him water to drink, for thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. So it was completely by a false addition by the Pharisees that it was never taught to love your neighbor but hate your enemy. On the contrary, it was actually told that not only are we to love our neighbor, but we are also to love our enemy. That was a lying addition made by the Pharisees to the command of God. They're making it sound as if it was commanded by God, hate your enemies. But Christ himself says, thou shalt love 
thy neighbor. What's at the heart of this is who is our neighbor? The Pharisees believe that the neighbor, and we'll get into more in this in just a moment, they believe that their neighbor was only someone who they considered a friend. They considered to be neighborly was to be someone who you were an acquaintance with, and they considered anybody who wasn't like them or their friend their enemy. Christ never said, thou shalt hate thine enemy, but the distinction between love and hate is always very finely marked throughout Scripture. So in this case, in this Scripture, we find something that's very hard for our human depraved minds to grapple with. How do we find ourselves, instead of hating our enemy, how can we bring ourselves to the place actually love the person who in many ways, if they're our enemy, might even want us dead? Now, this was a common method of the Pharisees, was to take a teaching of Scripture and add something to it that seems to be a natural inference or a growth. What I mean by that is, there always seem to be the inverse response. So if the Bible says that we're to love our neighbor, then obviously the inference must be this. Then we should hate our enemy. You see what I mean? That's what, that's what the Pharisees did. The natural inference was, okay, love your, love your neighbor. The contrasting idea is what? Hate the enemy. Now that is to, that is to commit... Uh, a, a, a crime against the scriptures. It's to commit a crime against the scripture to just immediately assume that the inference is the opposite of what he just said. Because nowhere in scripture are they being told to hate the enemy. However, the Holy Spirit, who breathed, God breathed the scriptures. His words are, thou shalt love thy neighbor. But the idea that the words hate thine enemy is part of the holy canon is far, far from the truth. So that very last sentence of verse number 43 is a very destructive and I think a very dangerous teaching. Because folks, in reality, even our enemies are in fact our neighbors. Now that's hard for our minds to grapple with. But there is not a distinction made between our neighbors are only the ones who really like us or the neighbor in our neighborhood, if we live in a neighborhood, who's kind to us. The neighbor who always stops and asks if they can help us or waves to us or says hi to us or we have conversations with. Even our enemies are our neighbors. So love, remember, throughout all the scriptures is the universal law. And it is Christ who is the one commanding that we are to love our neighbors. But he also, by correcting this, says, but I say unto you, verse 44, love your enemies. And if that's not hard enough, he goes one step further and says, I want you also to bless them that curse you. And I'm going to go another step further. I want you to do good to them that hate you. And then maybe what's even harder than all these things, I want you to pray for them which despitefully use and persecute you. Now the challenge right there is already, when's the last time you prayed for someone who's persecuting you? When's the last time you prayed before the Lord, somebody who hates you? <laughs> it's probably pretty convicting because probably it escapes many of us that that is not even something we seem to consider. Yet Jesus is giving us the pattern. 
And in this day and age in which we're hearing this word thrown around, we're hearing the word hate thrown around on every single corner. We're hearing the word hate by religious groups. We're hearing the word hate by social groups. We're hearing the word hate. And it seems to be the operative word of the day is hate. Yeah, you notice here that Jesus himself corrected it and said, no, love your enemies, bless them, do good to them, pray for them. So the neighbor in verse number 43, this is the very first context, and this goes all the way back to a passage in Leviticus. Leviticus 19, if you'd like to turn there, verse number 18. This is in the Mosaic law regarding laws concerning personal conduct. How do... How are we to conduct ourselves? How were they to conduct themselves? To narrow it down contextually even more, this is found in a section about being righteous in dealing with people. And so here's, here's where it, it says in verse number 18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. In verse 17, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon them. I'm going backwards intentionally. Verse 16, thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. And then verse 15, Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. So the key here is, is our neighbor, we are to deal with them in righteousness. Even our enemies. Deal with them in righteousness. So that passage, along with Matthew 5.43, proves that this is to include love to our neighbors in general, whoever they may be. But the Pharisees' argument was this. They argued that it was only a neighbor who was their friend who was to be treated that way. In other words, they hated the Gentiles. Study Bible history, you'll find out the Jews, for the most part, as a people, hated the Gentiles. They hated them and they did not refer to them as their neighbor. In many ways, they consider the Gentiles to be their enemy. That's what makes our study of, on Sunday morning about the book of Ephesians so remarkable. Remember, that was a church that was filled with Jews and Gentiles who at one point, they may, maybe didn't even have anything to do with each other. So here we have that not only did the Pharisees take this one step further, but even the, the Jews believed that the only friends or the only neighbor that they had were those who shared their same traditions, their same rituals. Certainly not the Gentiles because they don't follow those. Anyone who did not share their peculiar and particular views, the Jews considered an enemy. Now, if we take that same approach... How many people would we feel licensed to hate if they don't have our same peculiar views? And that's not just religious views. 
What if we, what if we move that all the way down to political and social economic views? If, if we took this to say, only the people who are like us are our neighbors, everyone else we're supposed to hate because we're our enemies, how many people would we hate in a day? How many people would you run into today, today that did not share your views on things? According to the Pharisees' teaching, they would be your enemy. And their addition to the law was, since you're not like us, we hate you. That's not the law of God. It's really, really tough to love someone who is on a counter-opinion in you, of you. I mean, watch the political spectrum. I'm not going to talk about this very long. Look at the political spectrum. It's, it's the most disgusting display of just about anything that you see is what happens on the political, in the political world. Because what you're seeing is people that are arguing and fighting and, and, and doing all things towards each other because their views are different. Yes, there's some moral views in politics. There's some moral views that we have to take a stand on, but we're never told to hate them. It's, it's alarming to me that hate has become such an easy thing for people to do. Their great argument as Pharisees was simply this, that everyone who was not a Jew was an enemy. And that any, every enemy, as a result of inference, because if we're to love our neighbor, hate our enemy, every person who was not a Jew was to be hated. That was where their pride and contempt of man came from. Hate thine enemy is the tradition that the Pharisees explained and they taught that that word neighbor only meant friend. Every enemy should be hated as a principle that, that was what, that's what their teaching was. They had prejudice against the Gentiles. They had prejudice against anybody who was not like them. They used even God's command in Scripture about the destruction of the Canaanites as a reason as to why they were allowed to hate the enemy. But remember, what Jesus was really, what God was really at at the Canaanites was to destroy those institutions that the Canaanites had taken. So here comes the principle. We know that to hate thine enemy is not right. Verse 44, love your enemies. This expression should be taken literally. It should be taken as universally applicable. That means we can't run this through the prism of our religion. We can't run it through the background of our politics. We can't run it through the prism of our perspective on life. It's universally applicable to say, I am to love my enemies. By the very fact that our enemy is our neighbor, okay? Our, if our neighbor, if we hate our neighbor, we are tempted to retaliate every time something happens. If we live in hate, then we're going to find ourselves saying, every time someone does me wrong, I'm going to retaliate. And yet, we learned last week in that section just previous to this, verse 38 through 42, about the teachings on forgiveness and how we were not to resist evil. And again, these are tough teachings. I, I'm not going to stay here and tell you that these are easy. These are difficult concepts. 
But notice that Jesus gives this and he gives these specifics. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them, which despitefully use you and persecute you. These are not pleasant thoughts. These are the last people our humanity wants to help and certainly doesn't want to love. It is really no problem loving someone who loves us back. As a matter of fact, it's the easiest of all love. Love someone who loves you back. Everything seems great. Everything seems fine. But what is that really? Isn't it Jesus is teaching something such a greater concept than this? It isn't hard to love someone who loves you. But imagine I command you, I'd say unto you, love your enemies. And yet, here we have these very specific cursing, hating, praying, those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, the way to understand all this comes into verse 35, or 45 rather, when Jesus gives the reason. These aren't just random commandments he gives that say, this sounds like a good idea. He gives that this is a characteristic of a child of God. Verse 45, that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. Now this phrase, that ye may be, does not just simply refer to our final salvation in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't just refer to our coming promise of one day we are going to be in the kingdom of God with God. But what Jesus means here is the reality that when you do these things, when you pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, when you do good unto the, your neighbor, when you do good unto them that hate you, when you bless them that curse you, you give evidence, you give proof that you are in fact a child of God. Even more specifically, all the way back in Matthew 5, 9, remember what we learned about the peacemakers. He says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. What Jesus has in mind with this hating of the enemies is that this is a demonstration that you are in fact the evidence of a child of God. You know what a peacemaker really is? That constitutes evidence that you are modeling Christ himself. How the Lord walked on this earth, especially in those final days, with the amount of hate and persecution that came his way, and he never returned evil for evil. Now we can, we can cop out and say the excuse, well, he was God. But do you realize that it wasn't just him being God? He was giving us an example of how we ought to live and how we ought to be. Again, these are not easy concepts. If you've truly had someone that you've ever had in your life, and maybe you need to bring this to your mind's eye, someone who truly, and I, I'm not just talking about a strong dislike. I'm talking about somebody in your past, somebody in your present, who actually hates you. Hate you. And honestly, they wish bad things upon you. 
That's the very people Jesus is saying you're to love. How in the world do we do that? How in the world do we as mere humans love people like that? We can't in our humanity. Our humanity will not allow us to love people that way who hate us. You can only do this in the power of the Spirit. You can only do this in the love of Christ. Somehow, someway, we have to look at every person on this planet as God's creation. We read that passage from Exodus. God is the giver and the maintainer of life. Now we could say, yeah, but these are wicked people. These are evil people. They were still created by God. They were still created and their life is being maintained by God. And we're not to be revengers or avengers. We're not to be the ones who who carry out against them. Jesus says, no, instead, I want you to bless them. I want you to do good unto them. So what Jesus has in mind here for his children is that this gives evidence. Now notice he makes mention, and this is, this is profound to me, that ye may be the children of your Father. That makes God our Father. That makes us His sons. It's, it is not unremarkable that Jesus actually used the word to the kingdom, to kingdom children and He said, your Father... Be the children of your father. He was identifying those hearers. He is your father. And we've been learning on Sundays. Not The whole world cannot call God their father. You don't have a right to call God your father if you're not one of his children. Yet he says that ye may be the children of your father which is in heaven. And then Jesus gives this great theological dissertation on his father. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. You realize that same sun that comes up, that we enjoy the same sun that produces the effects it produces by the providence of God, that same sun comes up on the evil person as well. You and I are standing under the same sun as even the most vilest person and the most, the most hated enemy that we have. God, as the Father, as the Creator, as the giver and the maintainer of life, has made the Son rise on them. Now, in our humanity to try to be a greater theologian than God, we've often wondered and asked the question, if this is so bad, why doesn't God just wipe all the bad people off the planet? But yet they're there. And God in His providence and God in His judicial authority, even in the simple things, makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And He adds one more, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. It rained and rained and rained and rained here this morning. It, did, it, rained, it rained on the fields of believers and it rained on the fields of unbelievers. Again, <laughs> these are the Lord's appeals to the example of His Father in order to show the nature of what the highest love looks like. 
The highest order of love is found in what the Father does. What were the, what were the Pharisees and the publicans and the heathen really guilty of showing? They were, they were showing just how self-centered, pride-filled, egotistical, and narrow-minded humanity can be. By saying, listen, we're going to determine who will love and we're going to determine who will hate. What were the Pharisees really guilty of is they sought to determine who their neighbor actually was. I love what Spurgeon said about this verse, specifically verse 45. He said, ours it is to persist in loving even if men persist in enmity. We are to render blessing for cursing, prayers for persecutions. Even in the cases of cruel enemies, we are to do good to them and pray for them. We are no longer enemies to any, but friends to all. We do not merely cease to hate. I like this. We do not merely cease to hate and then abide in a cold neutrality, but we love where hatred seemed inevitable. We bless where our old nature bids us curse, and we are active in doing good to those who deserve to receive evil from us. Chew on that for a while. Chew on the verses that Jesus himself is saying. Here's what's been said. Here's what you've heard. But I say unto you, you should love your enemies. Verse 46. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? It's a good question. If you love those who love you, what's the reward? What, what comes as a result of that? And he uses specifically a group of people. This isn't by accident or just by random chance. Do not even the publicans the same? Now the publicans were a particularly despised, hated group. They were partly, some were Jews, some were Romans, but they were employed in the service of Rome and they were the ones responsible for the taxes of the country. They were about the most disliked hated representatives of the Roman government. If, if you wanted to be part of the worst part of the worst of the worst of Roman government, be a tax collector. They were despised. They were hated. And by the way, they cheated. They robbed. They, they were crooked towards people. That phrase when Jesus actually said, even those who despitefully use you and persecute you, you know, that, that would have fit the publicans to a T. They would have known probably what it was like to be used by the publicans. Yet Jesus uses, even the publicans love people who love them. So you see that what Jesus is simply saying here is the Pharisees, no doubt, as they looked at all of these things and they looked at the, they looked at the publicans also as being the tax collectors and being part of the Roman government, uh, they would have treated the publicans the same way. The, 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 the Pharisees would have had nothing to do with the publicans either because they looked at them as they were, they were an arm of the Roman government. But anybody, any common man will love those that love them. 
even tax collectors will rise up to that level. Jesus has got something much more in mind here. Even a despised tax collector will rise up to the level of loving someone who loves them back. Folks, that's not the way, that's not the way believers are supposed to be. We're not supposed to be just rising to the level of, hey, I'm just going to love people who love me. We're to rise above that level. And that's what Jesus is proving here, is you're to love beyond what the average common person rises to. That common level is if we just went around and just loved people that loved us, there's really nothing to that. But the real evidence of being a child of God is what do we do with our enemies? How do we treat our enemies? And that's what he has in mind here. Love for love is what man can do in and of himself. But love for hate is Christ-like. Love for hate is Christ-like. What, what do, folks, what do we actually desire I mean, do you, kind of on a personal note, do you desire your, your Christianity to just meet this common level? Like, I've been around, I've been around Christians and churches that kind of set a bar. And they say, this is the bar that once we've reached that bar, we've arrived as a church. But do you realize that true Christianity is not based upon reaching some man-created bar. It is going above and beyond that and excelling that so that we give an accurate picture of the highest love of our Savior. Folks, I'm not satisfied, and I hope you're not satisfied, just reaching a part of being an average Christian who can say the right words, can sing the hymns, but isn't desiring to actually follow the commandments of the Lord and actually live this. Like, like if I'm here tonight and I'm trying to find ways of the people I don't have to love, I probably have the wrong attitude. So like if I'm sitting here tonight and I'm thinking, wait a minute, who, who do I not have to? Who's excluded from this? I think that's why Jesus used that he covered the whole spectrum of people. Those who curse you, love them. Those who do wrong unto you, do good unto them. Those who despitefully use you and persecute you, I want you to pray for them. I think one of the hardest things you'll ever do, even trying to rise up to this level of Christianity, is just simply even trying to pray for an enemy. I think that's so hard for most of us as believers to pray for an enemy because what do we say? We say things like this. They're not worthy of my prayers. And you and I were not worthy of the love of Christ either. And I hope we realize that again, I think we sometimes forget and we say this a lot at our church, I know. There was nothing. Christ was not loving us because we loved him first. As a matter of fact, before our eyes are open to the truth of the gospel, we're called the enemy of God. We're actually called the sons and daughters of the devil. Christ did not love us because we loved Him. In essence, Christ loved us when we hated Him. 
And before, before Christ converted you, before the Spirit regenerated you, you and I hated the things of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after righteousness. So if Jesus doesn't come seeking us when we hated him, and people will say, well, I don't remember a time in my life I ever hated Jesus. I've always loved Jesus. That's not exactly true. Christ has given us an example of something so much more than, than just this Christianity that's just marked by just doing enough to just say we're Christians. You show me a person who actually lives this and you're showing me the, a perfect, you're showing me a greater picture of what truly what Christ is by doing that than almost anything else you do. I've read accounts, I've read accounts again of martyrs of the faith. And I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm convicted to the core every time I read this. It's martyrs of the faith who at the moment before their execution, they were praying for their executioner. With the thought in mind also knowing that within moments they were going to be with their savior. But can you imagine? Can you imagine having that level of understanding, that level of walk with God, that even praying for those who persecute you, those who desire to, uh, to, 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 to take your life away? You realize even in all of these things that are happening in our, in our nation and certain nations around the world where, you know, there are things happening to churches and there are things happening to people. There are governments that are coming across the churches. We're supposed to be praying for them. Jesus goes on to give this other example. He says, for if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And if you salute your brethren only. What do you more than others? Oh, how fitting is this? Brethren, co-believers. If all we ever do is go around loving our other brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not doing anything else than any other group does. You realize other groups that are not even religious groups, they love their group. What reward is that to a believer? How does that alone picture Christ? If all we ever do is love one another, and we love each other because we're brethren, we love each other because we're all believers, we're not, we're not rising above a level of any other common person, any other human being. They all do that. But again, notice the wording. He mentions the publicans again. Do not even the publicans so? The publicans salute the brethren only. How's that any more than what they do? Do not even the publicans the same with loving them? He's telling them, if this is your attitude, you don't raise any higher than even what the publican does. And then verse 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Jesus now refers back to what he just said in verse 45. Be ye therefore perfect. Of course, this is not perfection and sinless perfection. 
But this is perfectness in our ultimate aim. We who have been created in the image of God, we who have been created and been restored and regenerated, converted, are being made partakers of His divine nature who have been created and redeemed. We are to endeavor, folks, to be like Christ. If that's not our aim as believers, what are we actually aiming at? I mean, truly, if we're not aiming to be like Christ, even in the way we think about our enemies, what are we aiming at? Love is the very bond of what perfect perfectness is. If we have an aim of a love that is aimed at the perfections of God, if I want to love like God loves, if I want to love like Christ loved me, when I was the enemy of God, what greater example do I give than how I treat my enemies? We treat people that way because we are to be abounding in the love of Christ. We are, to be, we are to be living as if Christ's love has constrained us and it compels us to be different. Folks, what's going to show this world who Christ really is, is not raising our voices louder and louder and screaming at our enemies like we're doing them some kind of a favor. That's the worst picture of Christ you can possibly give. Shouting at a sinner and telling him and shouting just uncontrollably, you're not doing any help at all. Imagine that simple example we saw all the way back in the Old Testament about the enemy's ox. If he goes astray, go help him bring it back. It seems so simple, but do you realize how depraved our mind is and our heart is? we would rather laugh at their predicament than go and help them. So what Jesus has in mind here as we bring this to a close is that we are to be proceeding and aiming in this direction. We understand that as children, we ought to want to resemble our Father. We ought to want to live like what, how our Father has commanded us. We want to live and follow the example of Christ. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10.4 and Romans 13.10. Paul's point was that Christ is the end and the fulfillment of the law. And here's what he said in Romans 10.4. He said, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The end of the law. The law can do nothing else but reveal sin and it pronounces condemnation on the sinner. And yet, we cannot get men away from sin even though we show them just how precious Jesus is. But yet, Christ is the end of the law in that He is the purpose. He's the object of the law. And He was the fulfiller of it. And in Romans 13.10, Paul also said this in the context of loving one another. Love worketh no ill, no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So when I don't work ill towards my neighbor, I am demonstrating and showing the example of Christ 
who is the fulfillment of the law. See the pattern? We have a picture of the life of Christ. We have a picture of how the Sermon on the Mount itself presents to our view the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who He is in His righteousness. And it is in a complete contrast and directly opposed to what we see in the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus is again all but blowing up the whole external religion tradition of the Pharisees. He's, in these verses, He's all but saying everything you see in the Pharisees is not of Me. And do you know how many churches have become enamored with the pharisaical approach to spirituality? Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and you will be the picture of a perfect Christian. No, closer picture of a Christian is a Christian who loves his or her enemies. It's an amazing. I've never been to a I never been to a revival meeting or a camp meeting that actually had as its main theme on the banner love your enemies. Not one time have I seen it. Matter of fact, I don't know if I've heard a sermon about the importance of what Jesus was actually teaching about loving your enemies. Why? It's not going to draw a crowd. Who wants to come hear how to love enemies? I don't want to hear about loving enemies, but yet that's a picture of the example of Christ because when you were his enemy, he loved you. That's the only reason you're sitting here tonight as a believer is because Christ loved you when you hated Him. That's the only reason you're here. You're not here because of your mom and your dad. You're, not, you're here because Christ loved you. And that's, that's the picture that Jesus is showing here. And, and, and he's, here's Jesus as the master teacher. And He's presenting to His disciples, here's a picture of your heavenly calling. Here's what true belief looks like. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor. Your enemies are your neighbor. And in doing so, you show and you reflect and give evidence that you are in fact a child of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You, Lord, for this passage of Scripture even though this is an extremely difficult passage to even comprehend, it's extremely difficult to apply. But Lord, I pray that You would guard our hearts from wondering how do we get around this? How do we maybe make this not apply to us and yet realize that this is universal, universally applicable to every believer. Father, we know that this strength to love can only come from the Spirit of God Himself. It is not within our human makeup to love those who hate us, who curse us, who persecute and despitefully use us. But may, Lord, we continue to learn what true Christianity, what true belief really looks like what the Gospel really declares. How the Gospel is declaring to those who at this moment, they do hate God. And in many ways, they hate God's people. But Lord, we also know that every hater of God at one point 
that hater of God, maybe we never thought they could become one of Christ's own. And we understand that every opportunity we have to give the gospel to someone, or maybe even our enemy, may we do it to the glory and honor and praise of Jesus Christ himself. Father, we thank you for this time. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. I want to read just a couple verses to you by way of a benediction and we'll be on our way. It's in the book of Jude. And I read, this, read these verses today and I thought this is very appropriate for what we've talked about tonight. Jude 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Lord bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. We'll see you Sunday. Thank you.